practice around the world. 70% of them practice right here in our own country. And you would think with those kind of numbers that justice would prevail. But it's not always the case. The Stella Awards were inspired by the court case uh, that I know you've heard of. But it's the woman who at the age of 79 spilled a cup of McDonald's coffee on her lap, burning herself. And in 1992, a New Mexico jury awarded her $2.9 million in damages. That court case spawned an internet group led by Randy Cassingham uh, that honored the most ridiculous court cases. And he continued that until 2007 when he actually wrote the book, The True Stella Awards. But he continued with a newsletter that I signed up for because I kind of like that sort of thing. Uh, there are many nominees for the Stella Awards, uh, many of them, but among them, Kathleen Robertson of Austin, Texas, who was awarded $780,000 by a jury of her peers after she broke her ankle because she tripped over a toddler in a furniture store. Uh, the toddler was running wild and she accidentally tripped over him. The owners of the store were surprised by the verdict because the toddler that was running wild belonged to Ms. Robertson. Listen, I can't tell if those stories are humorous or if they're just aggravating or maybe both. And if those breaches of justice frustrate you, then what we're going to talk about today could set you over the edge. Hey, if you're new to MCC, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here. And as you can tell, we are improvising from our usual way of being together. I appreciate you joining us today. And I know what you're thinking. And the answer is yes, all pastors have a pulpit in their home. Listen, we're in a series called Three Days, where we have been tracking with Jesus over the last three days of his life before the cross. And we started in the upper room and we followed him from there to the garden, uh, to Judas's betrayal. Last week, we looked at Peter's denial. And if you missed any of those, can I encourage you to go to our website and check those out? Last week when we left Peter, he was in the courtyard of the high priest. It is now Friday morning, the, the day Jesus is going to be crucified. And following his arrest in the garden, the religious leaders have held court and secret meetings all throughout the night. And at the end of it, a guilty verdict was rendered. They have wanted to kill Jesus for a long time, and now they have him. Which leads us to Matthew chapter 27, which says that the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and they took him away to Pilate, which begs the question, why would they take him to Pilate? And the answer is, they didn't have the authority to carry out the death penalty themselves. That sentence could only be pronounced by the Roman governor and carried out by the Roman authorities. But I do want to make sure you catch this. Pilate didn't just appear out of nowhere with no background, although it seems almost as if he did. He appears to have belonged to a well-attested Ponte family, a well-known family which produced a number of important individuals in the Roman Empire. In other words, he grew up in a family of political influence, and he understood the power that that influence brought. But beyond that, really not much is known for certain about his life before he became the governor of Judea. But Pilate had a backstory. This is huge. I want to make sure you get this. 
Pilate had a backstory that leads to this very moment in his story. What we do know about Pilate is that he had been appointed by the emperor of Rome to rule on his behalf in Jerusalem. And that term governor that we use for Pilate is uh, used to describe him probably because it comes closest in English to describing the kind of geographical area that he was overseeing and actually the role that he was playing. The Romans had sent four governors in 20 years to Judea before the time of Jesus. Pilate becomes the fifth, overseeing this province for Rome, most likely with hopes of a quick promotion, which would mean if he does well, his next assignment would be more prestigious, perhaps even closer to Rome itself. But there was a reason that Jerusalem had so many governors in so short of time. The Jewish people were very difficult to govern. The ancient historian Philo reveals that Pilate was on report with Caesar at this time because he never really had control of this tiny province. No one did. On your notes, if you have the YouVersion Bible app open, it should say this, Pilate was not popular with the Jewish people. Historians say that many saw Pilate as oppressive, greedy, stubborn, and cruel. He had little or no regard for the faith of the Jews or their God. The historian Josephus records how Pilate began his time in leadership there by parading the Roman standard into the city of Jerusalem. Now, the Roman standard would have been a stake with an eagle on top or maybe the image of Caesar. He had repeatedly introduced Roman penance or standards as decorations on buildings that had pagan images or images of the emperors on them. He took these Roman shields uh, with a picture of Caesar, and hung them up in the temple of God. Now, in fairness to Pilate, in his mind, he's honoring Caesar. But if you're aware of the Ten Commandments, you know exactly how Jewish people view graven images. And so the people rise up in protest. Pilate responds by having his soldiers surround the protesters. They draw their swords as if they're going to attack. And Pilate says, this meeting is over, or if I snap my finger you will all die. All 600 men lay down on the ground and exposed their necks. And they said, we would rather die than worship in an idolatrous temple. Now, you're new on the scene. The one thing you do not want to do is send a message to Rome that says my first official act was to kill 600 Jews while they lay on their backs. So Pilate lost round one. He removed Caesar's image, but he detested the Jewish faith, and the Jewish people. Round two, Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct and needed some money. So he went to the temple treasury and helped himself. The Jews considered it robbing from God, but Pilate considered that money his, and so he was only taking what belonged to him in the first place. Another protest followed. He sent his soldiers into the crowd dressed as civilians. And on a signal, they dropped their cloaks, threw off their robes. They attacked the crowd. They killed several people. Pilate said, you, you won round one. I'm going to win round two. And he did. Guess who becomes the tiebreaker? The charge of Sanhedrin leveled against Jesus was blasphemy. That meant that he was claiming to be the son of God. But they knew that Pilate wouldn't listen to that charge. And he would tell them to settle it on their own religious quarrels. But they wanted Jesus dead. So they said, give us what we want, or we're going to tell your boss. We will tell Tiberius that you are no friend of his because you let someone who claimed to be king go free. 
Look at chapter 27, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. So meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of Pilate. Listen, Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent, but his past misdeeds have given the religious leaders a lever to do their will against his wishes and his sense of justice. And I need to tell you this, that the Jews hated crucifixion. And I want to remind you, Jesus was actually quite popular with the masses. So in verses 15 and 16, we're told that it's Passover time, and it was a custom at the Passover for the governor to release a prisoner. And at the time, there was a prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So in verse 17, Pilate asks, who do you want me to release? Do you want me to release Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, or Jesus, the healer, the helper, the one called Messiah? And I think he really believes they're going to pick Jesus to be released. In fact, most likely, Pilate thought this would be a way to get his approval ratings up a little bit. And if this had been an average crowd, he probably would have been correct. But keep in mind, it's 6 o'clock in the morning. The religious leaders have recruited this crowd. And so when Pilate gives them the choice, you can almost see the religious leaders moving amongst the crowd, telling them to pick Barabbas. Verse 19. While Pilate is sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. And the truth is, Pilate should have listened to his wife. And I wonder how many of us husbands have said that at one time or another. And we know that we all get in a whole lot less trouble if we would just listen to our wives. But Pilate's getting pressure from the Jews, from Rome, from his wife. And when you go through this story with a fine-tooth comb, you find out that Pilate has tried to release Jesus seven times. That's why this bargain with Barabbas, but verses 21 and 22 tell us that the crowd doesn't pick the right guy. They choose to release the guilty and condemn the innocent. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And verse 25, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and had him handed over to be crucified. So I want to make sure you get this this morning. Pilate knew that what he was about to do was wrong, but he did it anyway. And I want to point out some good and bad about Pilate's decision making. First, he asked the right questions. And by the way, this may have something to do with your next step in your faith, because asking questions, asking the right questions, is important in making any decision. When you read through Scripture, you find out that Pilate asked, we have recorded, so we know at least seven questions while Jesus is before him. And if you're not sure about Jesus, can I encourage you? Ask questions. Ask lots of questions. Investigate who Jesus really is. And if you have a friend who is figuring out who Jesus is. They don't follow him, but they're asking questions. Can I ask you to treat their questions with respect? Help them look for the answers. Second, he had plenty of reason to believe. He had the words of his wife. 
Jesus had personally affirmed to him that he was the Messiah. And, and there's no doubt that Pilate had heard about Jesus's miracles. You know, I have friends that I grew up with, some who are probably watching this right now, who can testify that Jesus has made a change in who I am. And the Bible is filled with evidence of why you should believe in and follow Jesus. Listen, there's plenty of reason to believe in Jesus. And maybe Pilate did believe, but he wasn't willing to act on that belief. Third, he let the wrong people influence him. Listen, no doubt the chief priests and extremist crowd were putting a lot of pressure on him. I'm sure that he felt like he was in between a rock and a hard place. So he gives into the pressure of the lie instead of standing up for the truth. It isn't easy to make decisions about Jesus. There's always powerful pressure at play. There may be a high price to pay for you. The people in your life may be pulling hard in the opposite direction. And we have to decide who we're going to listen to, who's going to have the greatest influence in our life. It's not merely that Pilate allowed Jesus to be crucified. Here's what I want to make sure that you catch and don't try to duplicate in our lives. Pilate thought he could wash his hands of this decision. Now, Pilate is tired of arguing. He's not known for his compassion, and he believes that he's done all that he can. The fate of Jesus is simply not worth the effort, so he orders this small bowl of water uh, to be brought in, and theatrically, he makes a show of washing his hands, a ritual cleansing. Pilate has a moment where he knows he has to make a decision about who Jesus really is. And at some point, I'm telling you that because at some point, we have to make a decision about who Jesus is in our lives. And I know, listen, we all process decisions differently. Some of us move more quickly than others. Sometimes we try to avoid certain decisions in our lives. But there's a decision we all have to ultimately make. We have to decide if we believe in Jesus. And if we believe in him, are we going to follow him or not? And what we decide about that can change everything. So let me add to that first thought that I mentioned earlier, you saw on the screen earlier, Pilate had a backstory. So do I, so do you. We, we have a backstory too. And maybe you're watching today because you're trying to figure out whether or not you believe Jesus or whether or not you wanna follow him. Maybe you have a friend who's also wrestling with that. Listen, no one who is confronted by a decision about Jesus can just wash their hands of it. You either choose to follow or you don't. And there are many who are watching this who have come to that moment and they decided that they're going to follow Jesus. Look at what Paul said to Timothy. He said, but you man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we actually have to decide this every day. Am I really going to live out the good confession that I made? Am I, am I going to live out the decision I made when I was 11 years old? Am I gonna live that out today to follow Jesus? Are you going to live out the good confession that you made at however old you were, whenever that was, to follow Jesus? And listen, I wonder if, like me, you've had those days where I seem to live my life 
as if I can wash my hands of Jesus in this part of my life or that part of my life. But I want to make sure you know following Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. And I'm not talking about, so please don't hear me say sinless or perfect. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about being faithful. You either follow him or you don't. You know, Pilate seemed to like Jesus and wanted to protect him. But liking Jesus isn't enough. You have to decide whether you're, or not you're going to follow. And then each day you have to decide as a follower of Jesus, am I going to live my life like his and love people like him? In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, it's a children's book, series of books. Uh, it weaves a story about four children who find themselves in a magical land called Narnia. Maybe you have seen the movies. Uh, they face many adventures there, but nothing parallels their interaction with a great lion named Aslan, a lion that represents Jesus in these stories. And in one pivotal scene, the youngest girl, Lucy, is reunited with Aslan at a time of intense anxiety. She's relieved, she's excited, hoping that Aslan has come to reveal himself to her brothers and sister or, or to frighten away their enemies. But instead, Aslan instructs her to return to the camp and to share with the others the mission that he has outlined for them to do. Honestly, Lucy finds herself in despair. She's certain that no one is going to believe her story and none of them are gonna follow her leadership. She's the youngest. And then Aslan says to her, come, we have no time to lose. I will walk with you to the edge of your camp and then you must awaken the others and tell them to follow. But if they will not, then you at least must follow me alone. But if not, if they will not, then you at least must follow me alone. You know, each week, those of us who are followers of Jesus stop to remember through our time of communion this promise that we made to him. So we take the bread and we take the cup of juice that remind us of his body and blood given at the cross for us. And we remember the price that was paid. And we say again through this act, I believe. I will follow. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this simple act uh, that transports us back 2,000 years to an event that happened on a cross and brings us right back to our own life where we made a decision to follow you. And we remember and we engage that moment again in the decision that we've made to follow you. And Father, as we take these emblems now that remind us of the price for our sin that Jesus paid on the cross, we not only remember, but we recommit ourselves to you again, that we believe. And again, we are telling you today, we will follow you. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for walking with us through all of our lives, but we think especially of this time. We love you.